Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from my sickbed in beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I just had shoulder surgery last week, and I am on my way back to the land of the living, and I'm actually recording from my bedroom. So it may sound a little bit different, but I have a pretty sweet setup here. Um, this shoulder surgery was no joke. They went in and they fixed my labrum, which is cartilage. They drilled in some holes and anchored that in and scraped stuff out and grinded some things and that was, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty nasty, but enough of that. So here I am back. I'm going to try to get back onto a good schedule, though I know my schedules haven't always been on schedule, but I want that to change this year. So today's episode is on the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. It goes down in history as one of the worst racially motivated, torturous, human experiments that took place and it took place in Tuskegee, Alabama. In 1931, these experimentations began. The study targeted 623 predominantly poor, uneducated African-American men from rural Alabama. These men were told that they were getting free health care. They were not told that they would be human guinea pigs. Before I get into the real meat and potatoes of what happened, I'd like to first talk about what syphilis is. That way you can fully understand that the abuse and torture these men suffered. Syphilis is a common bacterial infection that spread through sex. Syphilis is easily cured with antibiotic medicine like penicillin, but it can cause permanent damage if not treated. It is a common STD, and it's spread through vaginal, anal, and oral sex, basically skin-to-skin contact. Syphilis causes sores on the genitals, called cankers. The sores are usually painless, but they can easily spread the infection to other people. Sometimes people confuse syphilis symptoms with other things like pimples or rashes. The infection comes from contact with these sores. A mother can also pass the syphilis to a baby during pregnancy and childbirth which can be dangerous, because the child then will get the disease. Using condoms every time you have sex is one of the best ways to prevent syphilis, even if you or your partner seem totally healthy. Syphilis isn't spread through casual contact, so you can't get it from sharing food or drinks, hugging, holding hands, coughing, sneezing, sharing towels, sitting on toilet seats. You can't get pregnant that way either. FYI. Even though... Grand Auntie Alice told you you could. Syphilis symptoms come and go over time, but that doesn't mean that the infection goes away. In fact, it will get progressively worse and lead to devastating conditions and eventually death. But it's usually easy to cure with antibiotics when you treat it early. 
the only way to get rid of it is to take the antibiotics. So there's three stages. You have your primary stage. A syphilis sore pops out. That sore is where the syphilis infection entered your body. The cankers are usually firm, round, and painless, or sometimes open and wet. And there is often only one sore. There can be more. Cankers can grow on your vulva, vagina, anus, penis, scrotum, and rarely around your mouth, the lips of your, in your mouth. The sores may also hide deep into your vagina, under your foreskin, inside your rectum, and other places that are hard to see. Cankers typically show up anywhere between three weeks and three months after you get the infection. And the sores will last about three to six weeks and then go away on their own, with or without treatment. But if you don't get treated, you still have syphilis even if the sores are gone. And that lack of treatment leads to the secondary stage. The symptoms include rashes on the palms of the hands, soles of your feet, and other parts of your body. The secondary syphilis rash is sometimes hard to see, and it usually doesn't itch. You may feel sick and have mild flu-like symptoms, like a slight fever, feeling tired, sore throat, swollen glands, headache, and muscle aches. And you can also have these sores again in your mouth, vagina, anus, with weight loss and hair loss. So these symptoms can last anywhere between two to six weeks at a time and may come and go for up to two years. They're similar to other common illnesses, so it can be hard to tell that it is syphilis. And the symptoms from this stage will go away by themselves with or without treatment. But again, unless you get treated for the syphilis, you have the infection in your body and it can move into the dangerous later stages. So the late stage. In between the secondary and the late stage, there may be times when the syphilis infection is latent. There are no signs or symptoms at all uh, for months or even years, but treatment obviously is still needed. People who have had syphilis for a long time face serious health problems. Late stage syphilis can cause tumors, blindness and paralysis, stroke, meningitis, hearing loss, dementia, loss of pain and temperature sensations in different parts of your body sexual dysfunction, bladder incontinence, sudden lightning-like pains that jolt through your body and difficulty walking. It can damage your nervous system, brain, and other organs and may even kill you. If you get treatment late, it will still cure the infection and stop further damage to your body. But the damage that late-stage syphilis has already caused can't be changed or healed. And the complications from late-stage syphilis can happen 10 to 20 years after you first get infected. The best thing that you can do is use a condom, ask your partner to use a condom, and to get regularly tested for any STDs. For your health and for the people that uh, you have intimate relations with. So that gives you an idea of what syphilis is and how it progresses and how elusive it can be. To understand how this experiment could have been allowed to start with to begin with, I think that it's important to understand the time, the place, and the racial climate. It's not an excuse, it's the horrible reality of the time. This made it easy for the monstrous doctors to manipulate these men. So Deep South, Tuskegee, and Macon County, Alabama in 1932, most people did not have plumbing, electricity, telephones, and cars, all of which are considered necessities of life now. But forget the material things, there were major differences in society and culture. African Americans had to use segregated water fountains. They couldn't eat at certain restaurants, and if they could, they had to sit in 
separate areas. Jim Crow laws were in full force. Racial restrictions were suffocating. As bad as things are still in our day and age, they were beyond terrible for African-American citizens. This area of Alabama was known as the Black Belt because of its rich soil, but also as a racial description of the area. By 1930, Macon County's population was 27,000, of which 22,000 were African-American. According to government statistics, the average income in Macon County was only $1 to $2 a day. So to put this in perspective, $1 in 1930 is equal to $15 in 2019. So their annual income was maybe $250 to $300 a year, which translates into $4,000 a year now. How could anybody survive off of that? A 1940 census showed that there were 5,200 farm-dwelling units in the county, of which 4,500 were in need of major repairs, had no running water, no electricity, and no toilet within the structure. The racial climate in Alabama from 1932 to 1954, and throughout the South, was that everything was rigidly segregated based on race. The laws of the state of Alabama required the complete separation of whites and blacks in public accommodations and in almost all aspects of life. This was the beginning of the doctrine of separate but equal, though not in practice. It was separate but unequal because facilities provided for black people rarely, if ever, were the same as those provided for whites. In 1954, separate educational facilities were inherently unequal and that the doctrine of separate but equal was unconstitutional. Even though this was put into law, racism was still the lay of the land. Going back to 1930, the Tuskegee Institute made it possible for African-American men and women to attend college if they could afford it. Oftentimes, the educated still had to work on the cotton farms in order to survive. Few owned their land. Most land was owned by greedy, racist farmers who completely abused and took advantage of their hard work. It was almost impossible for an African-American family to get ahead, and the whites tried very hard to keep it that way. In the 30s, most rural people simply did not have medical care. Children were born at home with births assisted not by doctors, but by midwives. Though, you probably would want a midwife to deliver your baby in those times over some of the the doctors that didn't really care much. Very few African-Americans were treated by a doctor, and for African-American males, the percentage was even lower. I'm pretty sure that only a handful of the 623 participants in the study prior to being involved had ever been treated by a physician. This was a state of health care in Macon County at the time the men were selected to enter the experiment. The study began as a project of the Julius Rosenwald Fund, which took an active interest in both education and health care for African Americans in rural South. Julius Rosenwald was a Jewish philanthropist who had helped build the Sears and Roebuck Company mail-order business. He donated to the Tuskegee Institute and also financed the construction of a large number of schools in parts of the South where state support for education of African Americans was weak to non-existent. The very first of those schools was built in Macon County. The goal of the Rosenwell Foundation was to improve race relations in general as the specific health and social problems facing African Americans were terrible in the southern states. 
A large-scale public effort was put into place to combat venereal disease, including syphilis, in most rural areas, which had huge numbers of poor people who were still unable to receive any treatment. In Alabama, 14 free clinics that were operated by the State Board of Health were treating 10,000 poor patients by the 1930s. Most of these were in the cities. In rural areas, the public health service gave private doctors free drugs for treatment of the poor. But the physicians were allowed to charge a $2 fee, and of course they did. And even many of the poorest patients could not afford that amount. The Rosenwald Fund began to work with the U.S. Public Health Service to expand medical services to the poorest African-American areas of the South. The fund was also helping to build hospitals and clinics and was promoting the hiring of African-American nurses and doctors and the training and hiring of African-American public health personnel. The U.S. was not the only country trying to identify and find a cure for syphilis. It had become an epidemic during World War I. Two German doctors had isolated the bacteria that caused the disease in 1905, and a test called the Wasserman blood test that detected syphilis was invented two years later. The treatment at the time involved injections of arsenic-type drugs. It didn't really work, and as you can imagine, it caused terrible side effects. They monitored the patients and discovered that the progression of the disease led to neurosyphilis and cardiovascular syphilis and other terrible symptoms. The findings were revealed to the health section of the League of Nations, and the U.S. took some of the findings from the report and applied it to their treatments. The large number of syphilis cases in Macon County and the fact that so few of the cases received any treatment was to play a crucial role in the creation of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. The infection rates in America ranged from a low 7% in Albemarle County, Virginia, to a high of 36% in Macon County. Everyone involved realized that they had a huge problem, and solving it would take both public money and public resolve. However, it was the Great Depression, and there was less money available. Dr. Clark was an advisor to the Rosenwald Fund, and he advocated for the study, and he called it the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Mail. It was a perfect storm for starting a racist and unethical medical experiment. Macon County had a high African-American population of 82%. The Rosenwald demonstration programs had shown that the residents of Macon County to have the highest incidence of syphilis among the six counties surveyed in 1930-31. Virtually none of these cases of syphilis among the rural population had been treated. So case acquisition, which required mass screening, could be done easily and cheaply there. The Tuskegee Institute's John A. Andrew Memorial Hospital was a facility where doctors' examinations, x-rays, and spinal taps could be made. Public health service officials felt that the African-American medical professionals associated with the Andrew Hospital were already known to the community and would be reassuring to the men that would be recruited for the study. Dr. Clark figured that if there were no funds to treat the syphilis problem in Macon County, a scientific experiment might be a way to learn something from it. The study was not supposed to go longer than eight months or so. It was not originally planned as a long-term observation of syphilis. The goal was to assess the extent of medical deterioration against the duration of the infection among a group of people with untreated syphilis. 
That group was to be located by mass screening a larger population using the Wasserman blood tests. African-Americans showed the disease led to different complications than Caucasians. African-Americans endured much more heart disease and considerably less neurosyphilis. The Norwegian study involved only white people, and the Tuskegee study promised data on black Americans. Males were chosen for the survey because their sex organs are external, and males are much more likely than females to notice syphilitic cankers, and therefore more likely to give accurate medical history concerning the date of infection. From the start, the program was based upon making Macon County African Americans believe that this was another public health treatment program. In fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. The Rosenwell Foundation had done a lot of good in Macon County, and the people had a lot of trust in them. But the doctors running this foundation used and abused the foundation itself to fund this program. If Mr. Rosenwald knew what their intentions were for this program, he would never have allowed it. They fooled the men into thinking that they were getting free health care, when in fact they were about to be used for medical experiments. Dr. Clark wrote the Macon County's high prevalence of untreated syphilis as a, quote, ready-made situation, if I may be permitted to use this phrase, but... In order to secure the cooperation of planters in this section, it was necessary to carry on this study under the guise of a demonstration and provide treatment for those cases uncovered, found to be in need of treatment. End of quote. So there it is. They were about to conduct a convenient and cruel human experiment that was just asking, in their sick minds, to be studied. From the beginning, the white doctors and public health officials involved knew that they were misleading the African-American test subjects about the true purpose of their efforts in Macon County. Their correspondence and reports revealed that they knew they had to pretend to provide treatment in order to secure the participation of the African-Americans to be tested, yet they had to withhold treatment in order to achieve their study results. So early in the fall of 1932, Dr. Clark traveled to Alabama to make preparations for the experiment. Dr. Clark formed an alliance with the Alabama Board of Health Director, Dr. Baker. They agreed upon this, quote, Every patient who was examined and found to have syphilis, including those who were selected for the study, was supposed to receive eight doses of arsenic concoction and some additional treatment with mercury pills. So, yeah, snake oil. Understanding and agreeing that giving a minimal treatment was better than none at all. It was the ethical thing to do, and after all, it wouldn't cure them, but it would make them less contagious. Really. They hired a team of white doctors, and they began the experiment. They also hired an African-American nurse, Eunice Rivers, as a scientific assistant to the project. She was a highly respected nurse and a supervisor of nurses at the Andrew Memorial Hospital. They felt that having an African-American nurse as the face of the study would further secure trust. In October 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service, in cooperation with the public health agencies in Alabama and the approval of the local, state, and national medical establishments for treatment of venereal disease, was ready to start a program which would not treat syphilis in the African-American males in order to observe the effects of untreated syphilis. And this was the start of the study. It would continue for 40 years. The study lasted from 1932 to 1972, 
and there were to be three stages to the study. So here's phase one. It started October 1932 to June 1933. In October 1932, word spread throughout Macon County that the government doctors who had provided free exams in 1930 were returning to start a new health program. Notices circulated throughout the county by mail, in churches, and schools. These notices were the beginning of the deception. It had been determined that about 400 infected males, 25 years or older, who had had syphilis for at least five years, would be needed for the study. 408 men with latent syphilis were selected for the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. From the point of view of the men involved, the goal was to obtain free health care, and the first step was to take a blood test. Some of the participants were told that they had bad blood, but they did not know what bad blood meant at the time. Others were told nothing. No one was ever told that they had syphilis. Most knew nothing about syphilis, and they were not told that they were involved in a study, and they never gave or were even asked to give written consent. The beginning of the physical medical part of the study was conducted by Dr. Vanderleer and a Dr. Wagner, with the assistance of Nurse Rivers and sometimes African-American medical students or interns from the Tuskegee Institute. They took blood samples until enough positive results were obtained to begin the physical exams. If the test subject was male and 25 years or older, a positive report meant that the person would be asked to come back for a second test. A second positive test meant that the person was asked to come for a physical examination, which was conducted by Dr. Vandeleur at the Andrew Memorial Hospital. Nurse Rivers transported the men two at a time in her car to the hospital. The participants lived in isolation and needed to be driven to the hospital. Nurse Rivers would log thousands of miles over many years of the experiment, not only driving them to the appointments, but also following up on them to, uh, on their progress of their disease. Dr. Vandeleur conducted two examinations in the morning and two in the afternoon. The test included chest x-rays and electrocardiograms. He took detailed medical histories which further screened out those who had been previously treated for syphilis and whose infections were less than five years old. Nurse Rivers reported the prospect of any medical treatment combined with the novelty of the experience was enough inducement to get the men to come in for the physicals. Here's a quote from her. In the early days, the people enjoyed the trip. It was a trip to town and a trip to the Tuskegee Institute. They would come up and spend the day. Two of them would get examined in the morning. While those getting examined, me and my buddy would go into town or go to the campus to see the Tuskegee Institute because there were many that had not been to Tuskegee before, even though they lived in Macon County. So they always looked forward to coming to Tuskegee and seeing us there. End of quote. I have a bit of a problem with uh, Miss Rivers. You know, that's a whole other story, but she knew what was going on. And yet she allowed herself to be used to abuse these men and coerce them into being into this experiment. Like I said, that's a whole other story. The screening and the qualifying exams continued through the fall. Examining and selecting the victims of this experiment continued until the spring of 1933. In April and May, as the project neared the end of its work, it was time for the most difficult part of the medical process, the sampling and extracting of spinal cord fluid from what they called lumbar shots, what we know as spinal taps or lumbar punctures. 
This was a difficult and dangerous procedure, and Vandeleur deliberately had postponed it to the end because he feared that once the spinal taps were carried out, many of the participants might quit the study. Yeah, fair enough. He was not wrong in this estimation of how the shots would be received by the men. According to Nurse Rivers, quote, The patient was placed on the table and bent over, and the doctor inserted the needle in the spine and withdrew the fluid. It was very, very cruel, very painful. End of quote. The purpose of the spinal taps was to allow the doctors to identify signs of neurosyphilis. Up to this point, the physical examinations had shown cardiovascular effects of syphilis, but virtually no effects on the central nervous system. If such symptoms were present, the spinal column fluid, or cerebral spinal fluid, would show them. The spinal taps are done with a three-inch needle inserted directly into the lumbar region of the spine. That's uh, your lower back. The process became known as the Vondelaire's Golden Needle Treatment. There can be little doubt that these spinal taps were extremely hard on the men. In later years, Nurse Rivers spent a great deal of time reassuring the participants that no further spinal taps would be taken from them and that any present ailments that they were having could not be blamed on the procedure. And I'm sure there were a lot of people, a lot of men that suffered from that. Vondelaire anticipated the effect on the project if the word spread in the community about the spinal taps before they were completed on all of them. So he decided on a policy of bald deceit. He planned to assemble the men at various field clinics and then transport them by automobile at a rate of 20 a day to Andrew Hospital, where the spinal taps would be performed and then the men would be kept overnight for observation in case of adverse reactions. This is how the taps were carried out during April and May of 1933. Dr. Wanger was recalled from Washington to assist with the process, and the involvement of participants was encouraged further with a special letter giving them a time and place. The fluid from the spinal taps was sent to the government laboratories for analysis. That should have concluded the field research part of the Tuskegee study. But Dr. Vandeleur didn't want the study to end. In July 1933, Dr. Clark retired and Dr. Vondeler was named the acting director of the Public Health Service Division of Venereal Diseases. And on July 18th, he wrote to Dr. Wanger. Here's the letter. Dear Doc, During the past six weeks, I've been busily engaged in reviewing the literature in connection with our recent study of untreated syphilis in Alabama. I have also discussed the matter with a number of officers here in Washington, and everyone has agreed that the proper procedure is the continuance of the observation of the Negro men used in this study with the idea of eventually bringing them to autopsy. I have reason to believe that this program will be approved by the Surgeon General. Briefly, my plan in Tuskegee is to obtain the cooperation of the state and local health departments, and most important of all, the Tuskegee Institute. When I read the part that says... Proper procedure is the continuance of the observation of the Negro men used in the study with the idea of eventually bringing them to autopsy. That made me sick. Their whole point was to take these men to death. And these men had no idea. They thought that they were getting cared for. The study was about to enter stage two. 
the study was moved into a new phase, one that was to continue far beyond Vondeler's estimated five to 10 years that would bring into sharp focus in later years the issues of morality and medical ethics. I'm going to end the episode right there. The next episode I will begin into stage two and to discuss further what went on in this treatment and then the end of this treatment and the implications and changes in laws. So, that being said, I think it's time for a new suture room. So come on in, have a seat. You know what? This time, come join me. I've got a comfy bed and I don't bite. Just relax and have a comfy pillow and I'll even share my vitamin water with you. You can have your very own, whatever flavor you like. So I'm going to dim the lights and I'll have a little chat about one of the most embarrassing moments in my nursing career. Okay. So this one does not take place in the ER. Early on in my career, I worked in the community as a visiting nurse, community nurse. And from there, I became a manager. And I managed all the nurses in that agency that I work for. So that was anywhere from hiring to doing site visits, uh, education, communicating with community services, things like that. And of course, any grievances that came from the nurses in regards to the working situations in the home and from the, the clients and their families themselves. One day I get a call from an irate son about what had been going on with his father, an elderly gentleman in his home. He said he had a tape for me to listen to. And that concerned me immediately. What was on this tape? So let's talk a little bit about this gentleman. He was in his 80s. He was alert and doing quite well living on his own. But his sight was going on him and he was diabetic. And he needed to get regular insulin injections, and just take a look at his feet and different things to make sure that he wasn't getting any ulcers, sores, that kind of stuff, and regular blood sugars, that type of thing. We had assigned a nurse who had, at that point in time, spent her whole career as a visiting nurse. She was well-suited for this case, lots of experience, and tons of education, you name it. She was what you would consider the perfect nurse. So I'm thinking, what could be going on? Never had a complaint about her. Honestly, never one complaint. And that's really unusual. Now, to be honest, I did find her a little odd. How she dressed. Most people, when they go in, into the community, you know, they wear nice slacks, uh, usually a white shirt, black pants, uh, that type of thing. Not jeans and sweatshirts and stuff. Unless you're going into really bad neighborhoods and you don't want to scream, hey, I'm a nurse and I'm carrying a bag. Uh, people might think you have medication and stuff in there, even though we don't. Anyway, she was always wearing like 
a three-piece suit. Well, maybe not a three-piece, but always wearing a suit and pins and her hair was always coiffured, like a beehive kind of deal. But I thought, hey, you know what? To each his own. That's fine. And she kind of talked like Julia Child a little bit. So that was a little odd as well. But you know what? Seriously, she was she was good at her job. Until I listened to the tape. What did I hear? I <laughs> I don't even know uh, how I'm going to explain this to you. My face is red. It was phone sex between the nurse and the client. It seems that they had quite the relationship going on. She was going over there and tending to his needs. Maybe dropping his blood sugar a little bit from extracurricular activities that were on board. And I'm not quite sure how the phone sex got recorded. My understanding is she called, the answer machine picked up, he didn't turn it off, and the son came over and listened to his message, and boom, there it is! Literally. Now, the father was like, what's the problem? (laughs) He clearly had no problem with it. He had this 40-something nurse coming in, and he had, like, uh, he was getting some action, and the nurse clearly was completely out of line for what she was doing. I mean, people are in a position of trust. And this is beyond acceptable. It crosses all moral and ethical boundaries. So, of course, we had to inform the CCAC, which is the Community Care Access Center. It's our government um, agency that pays for the funding and hires agencies to provide health care. We had to inform them. And of course, we had to fire the nurse. And when you fire a nurse in Ontario, and I'm sure any place else, we had to inform the College of Nurses. So I called them up and I sent them a formal letter information. And I had to go to a hearing, bring the tape, and listen to it with a panel of people. I was mortified. I I couldn't believe what I was listening to, A, and that I had to listen to it in front of people and in front of her. I If I could have crawled into a hole and just stayed there, I, I would have. So yeah, this is uh, <laughs> one of the most embarrassing moments of of my career. What happened to her? She had to go into some training exercises and rehabilitation and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, we were no longer treating this patient. He went to another agency, um, but I'm sure he was okay. I can't say for sure, but he seemed no worse for the wear. And uh, yeah, that is that case. So I'm glad I finally told this and got this off of my chest. And I hope to never, ever talk about it again. So thank you for joining me today on STAT. Thank you for all your support and for your listenership. So remember, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Love each other. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace.
One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah, subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack. <laughs>